From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Anti-gravitics, zero-point energy, UFO propulsion systems for the full two hours. Victor Vigiani and physicist Dr. Paul LaViolette are standing by. Just a reminder before we get to that, to subscribe to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. It's fast, it's easy. Just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and register. It takes but a moment, and then you're on the list, and you'll receive the newsletter every month, and you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet gear. T-shirts, hoodies, socks, mugs, tote bags, and more. And my Strange Planet shop as well can be found at strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. In Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, physicist Paul LaViolette reveals the secret history of anti-gravity experimentation from Nikola Tesla and T. Townsend Brown to the B-52 Advanced Technology Bomber. He discloses the existence of advanced gravity control technologies under secret military development for decades that could revolutionize air travel and energy production. Included among the secret projects, he reveals, is the research of Project Sky Vault to develop an aerospace propulsion system using intense beams of microwave energy similar to that used by the strange craft seen flying over Area 51. Using subquantum kinetics, the science behind anti-gravity technology, Dr. LaViolette uh, reviews numerous field propulsion devices and technologies that have thrust to power ratios thousands of times greater than that of a jet engine and whose effects are not explained by conventional physics and relativity theory. He then presents controversial evidence about the NASA cover-up in adopting these advanced technologies. He's also detailing ongoing Russian research to duplicate John Searle's self-propelled levitating disk and shows how the results of the Podkletnov gravity beam experiment could be harnessed to produce an interstellar spacecraft. Dr. Paul LaViolette is standing by on the phone, but first let me welcome my in-studio guest, Victor Vigiani is the executive director of Zeland Communications and the Zeland News Network. His research and analysis of anomalous aerial phenomena spans over three decades. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalism in the field of ETI disclosure issues. Victor, welcome once again, my friend. How are you? I'm just fine. It's just great to be here with you and uh, to talk to Dr. Leviolette. Looking forward to it. Yes, for the full two hours. Much to mm-hmm. discuss. All you right, bet. let's bring in the aforementioned. Dr. Leviolette has been president of the Starburst Foundation since 1984, where he's conducted interdisciplinary research in physics, astronomy, geology, climatology, prebiotic evolution, SETI, psychology, and anthropology. He received his B.A. in physics from Johns Hopkins, his M.B.A. from the University of Chicago, and his Ph.D. in systems science from Portland State University. After conducting occupational safety research at Harvard University, he invented and patented an improved rebreather apparatus. 
He's conducted solar desalination research for the state of California, done solar energy consulting for the Greek government, hello, and also consulted Hughes Aircraft Corporation on ways to improve company innovation. In 1993, he reverse-engineered the B-50, or the, sorry, the B-2 bombers classified propulsion technology and more recently has disclosed and explained the microwave beam technology used to propel vehicles developed in the super-secret Sky Vault project. He's the originator of the subquantum kinetics psych, uh, physics paradigm and also discoverer of the galactic superwave phenomenon, the notion that cosmic ray outbursts from the galactic core periodically trigger major shifts in the Earth's climate. In testing this theory, he became the first to discover high concentrations of cosmic dust and gold in Ice Age polar ice. More recently, he's shown evidence that about 50,000 years ago, Earth was showered by a major influx of tin-rich interstellar dust particles. He's also been shown evidence that an extreme solar event may have been the cause of the Pleistocene mass extinction. He's the author of six books, which include Secrets of Antigravity, Propulsion, Genesis of the Cosmos, Subquantum Kinetics, and uh, we welcome Dr. Paul Leviolette. How are you, sir? Welcome aboard. Uh, Glad to be here. (laughs) My my question is, do you ever have time to get a haircut and mow your front lawn? My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) You're a a busy guy. (laughs) Well, my wife helps out on mowing the lawn. Very good. Terrific. Please for that. And I don't have that much hair left, but I do get haircuts. (laughs) I I can identify with that, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Before we welcomed you uh, on board, Paul, Victor and I were discussing a little bit of Zero Point. Neither of us... You know, are certainly qualified to go too in depth. But Victor, you brought up an excellent topic, and that is that perhaps one of the reasons that it hasn't sort of penetrated into mass popular consciousness is it's so esoteric, and there are so few people who can explain it kind of at a street level where we can all understand it and buy into it and say, yeah, let's get behind this thing. What do you think, Dr. Liviellette? Is that maybe one of the stumbling blocks here? It could be. I have my own theory or view of zero-point energy, which is different from what the physicists talk about. And well, do tell. It's more easy to understand, but I could start with relating what the physics view is, if you want. Yes, please. Yeah. They see that space is like a vacuum, essentially, with uh, particles popping in and out of existence uh, everywhere. But they're in pairs positive and negative particles so a, be a pair of, like a positron electron for example and then they disappear and this all would happen so quickly in a blink of an eye that they could essentially say it never happened or according to that it wouldn't violate their conservation law and uh, so they, with this idea they, they say that uh, Space is full of this, this energy of these particles popping in and out of existence. Um, now, I have a, a different view because I don't believe in space-time and a lot of things. Uh, the, the, the idea that, that this standard idea originated with Dirac. Yeah, okay, it's fine. It's an interesting idea, but I don't believe it corresponds to reality. Uh, my view is that there's an ether. You know, that space is not empty and it's not particles popping in and out of existence. It's, 
ether, which is a substance below the level of particles. Particles are made from the ether, just like uh, think of waves in the ocean. The ocean, the water would be like the ether, and the waves would be the particles. And in this case, let's say at times in places where there's no matter at all, where space is what physicists call vacuum or empty, the ether still would have waves. Uh, there would be little fluctuations. There would be most of them so small they wouldn't even stand up to the point of being called a particle. Um, so they're like field fluctuations, gravitational and electric, electrogravitic, so so to speak, fluctuations. Um, and uh, most of them are below the quantum level. But now and then, you would have one very large that would be big enough to nucleate uh, the formation of a subatomic particle. And that would be a violation of energy conservation. And that's why physicists wouldn't like what I'm saying. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a violation because why? It seemingly comes from, some, from nowhere? From nowhere, so to speak. Uh, it comes into existence where there wasn't a particle before. Now you have a particle. Hmm. Where is it coming from? Another dimension? No, it's like from the ether. In this uh, physics, I, I deal with subquantum kinetics, which is uh, ether physics I've been developing for 40 years, which uh, has quite a following. I believe it's probably the major chat contestant to standard physics. Um, it has made 14 predictions that have been confirmed, uh, more than any other theory I know of, uh, it uh, it's it's take on a life of its own now. It's not what I consider my theory. It's uh, a lot of people are, it has a whole following. In fact, we have a working group uh, that gets together every Sunday to do modeling of the equations. It'd be much simpler to understand than standard physics. Really? Give us a in sense fact, of the potentiality. Uh, in my opinion, you you should throw out all of modern physics. I wish I could have said that in high school. I would have. (laughs) I can can list uh, the things to throw out. But before, let me say a quote from uh, William Tompkins. Are you familiar with him? Mm -hmm. He's written a book called uh, uh, Selected by Extraterrestrials. uh, We wouldn't have gotten to the moon if it wasn't for this guy. He was working at Douglas Aircraft in very highly classified positions, and he introduced the idea of the theater screen uh, idea where if you see NASA at their rocket launches, they have all these TV screens up in the wall. That was his idea. He was the first guy to suggest clean rooms for assembling rockets. They never would have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for this guy. And uh, he wrote a book that was published a few years ago about his experience, his life experience. And in one interview two years ago, he talks about something that Secretary of the Navy Admiral Forrestal was told, which was kept quiet all these years, and now he revealed it. Forrestal was told that every book in the libraries and the colleges and the universities, every book on this planet is misinformation. Hmm. All over this planet, books are not telling the truth, whether it's medical, solar system, astronomy, or science, 
every person, every PhD on the planet has been given misinformation. It's like uh, Lloyd Pye's book, Everything You Know is Wrong. I wouldn't say everything. In the mm. case of physics, uh, you can keep classical physics. In fact, you know, when I was studying physics, I found classical physics very easy to understand. But for the first two years, we'd study, like, Newton's laws and uh, things like this. And uh, what is force and so on, mass, energy, energy uh, conservation. Then we got to the third year, and they, they threw modern physics at us. Relativity, uh, wave particles, Copenhagen interpretation, all this kind of stuff. And I tell you, it throws you for a loop. Let me just go back to zero point, if I could, for a moment. I mean, I've heard some amazing analogies about the potential of zero point. If you could, well, give us your analogy. What is the potential if we could tap into this ether, zero-point energy? Well, I'd rather say you're tapping into the prime mover of the ether. The ether is not something that's static. It's got, in subquantum kinetics, it's a flux. It's sort of like the uh, ancient qi idea of the ancient Chinese or the prana of the ancient Hindus. It's more like Alfred North Whitehead's view of physics, that what's called process philosophy, Henry Bergson, the idea that existence is based on process, not structure. Physics uh, views everything based on structure, like particles glued together, it's uh, below level, like quarks and gluons, holding them together to form particles, things like this. Subquantum kinetics arose out of more of a Heraclitian concept. You know, Heraclitus, uh, ancient Greek philosopher, right. was saying that in reality everything is like a river flowing, and we are in this river. So that's where your source, your main source to tap into. I gave a lecture at the uh, Breakthrough Energy Conference, Global Breakthrough Energy Conference. They had a session in uh, Amsterdam, near Amsterdam, uh, just about a little a week ago. I, I don't know if you've heard of this conference. Yes, yes. It's every every mm-hmm. year they have it. You know, I was presenting uh, some of these ideas there. In my opinion, um, the um, standard zero-point energy concept is sort of overblown because, I mean, if you go to the standard view... Uh, you do have, according to them, a lot of energy in every cubic centimeter of space. If you go to the subquantum kinetics view, you don't have really that much. You have to wait around maybe uh, a million years for a particle to uh, spontaneously create in, in the room. You know, so you're not going to get that much energy out of the, these little fluctuations. Uh, and you know, there's people that are. are they have ideas to uh, tap this with special capacitors, with Casimir uh, effect, and so on. Um, so I think what they're really tapping is more waves existing, bouncing around. Where so this we are, this idea than, that this idea that we could um, we could harness we could power the planet with the strength of multiple suns we could we could solve the Earth's energy problems forever travel the solar system beyond the solar system uh, take our place among the stars that's not feasible you're saying it sounds it like yeah it is but not the way they're thinking they they don't 
without uh, first acknowledging the existence of the ether, they're going to be way back in the 20th, 20th century. You know, if you wonder, uh, technology hasn't really changed that much in our lifetime. And neither has physics, for that matter. I mean, we still have the Big Bang Theory, and yet it was disproved a long time ago. Uh, it's sort of like everything is ossified, just like in the Matrix. Right. I mean, we're still, we're still transmitting electricity the same way we did a hundred years ago. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I, it, there is an inertia to everything. I mean, there's greed and, uh, the interest of the companies to not tool up with new ideas. You know, I tried, I had, you mentioned I had a patent. I tried to, uh, uh, sell some rebreather companies. So the idea of my more is better way of doing things. And basically, the problem was they didn't want to spend the money to change what they were doing if they didn't have to. Even though people were actually losing their lives using using what they had. Um, so the same, you know, uh, the system set up in a certain way, and there's this inertia, and then there's. Uh, People believe there's people behind the scenes pulling strings to make sure that nothing changes, and that they've got their hand in the till. All right, listen, we're going to take a time out here, uh, Dr. LaViolette. We'll come back. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network, and we'll uh, continue to tap into zero-point energy, anti-gravitics, uh, UFO propulsion systems, and much more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. And on the line is Dr. Paul LaViolette, uh, the author of, among others, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion. And, uh, uh, well, Victor, I want to I send it over to you as we uh, kind of recover from uh, kind of a lunch bag letdown on zero-point energy. <laughs> Well, yeah, I I guess that's one way to describe it. And, you know, in any of the dialogue or or discourse that I've heard about uh, zero-point energy and and inchoate matter and and how you draw that energy from the quantum vacuum, um, and I know Hal Putoff has some very specific ideas about it, and I've I've listened to some of his commentary, and the one piece of commentary that he does um, uh, frequently put forward um, is this whole idea that, if we can draw whatever energy is out there, and uh, I stand to be corrected, I'm just repeating with the message that, 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 that Dr. Pudov uh, has told us, that in one cup of this stuff, if, if you can quantify it and put it in a whatever, it could, could boil uh, all the water uh, on, the, in the, on the oceans on the planet. And now, is he, is he, you know, is that, is that a, another lunch bag letdown? I'm not quite sure. But if, if that's, if that's the matter, if that's the case, if someone like, and Dr. Putoff uh, is espousing this type of, uh, uh, I, I guess theory or the, the possibility of this, um, where does that leave zero point energy in the context of what uh, Dr. Laviolette just said? And then I guess I, I'd like to transition into the idea of anti-gravitics and does it have any kind of relationship to what we're talking about? And once again, that's coming from a former school principal who, <laughs> what I know about physics, you could fit in a flea's navel and still have room for three caraway seeds. Okay, <laughs> so I mean, we're talking about someone who's at, at ground zero here with with that. 
I'd like to know what the relationship is between um, this whole idea of the quantum vacuum and, and this, the anti-gravitic technology that we know that we know is being experimented. Okay, but let, yeah. let me uh, yeah. go ahead. Take yeah, away your please. Anxiety. <laughs> if you take Putoff's idea and the standard physics view of zero-point energy, right, and you bring that energy, really, that's misplaced. They, the energy source is not at the quantum level; it's at the subquantum. Because uh, zero-point energy is a quantum phenomenon. It's particles coming in and out of existence, right. quantum particles. But uh, you, what you have to do is go down to the subquantum, the etheric level. And if you realize the, the ether is driven by a flux, it's a transmuting ether. Uh, and in, at the lecture I gave a few weeks ago, I, I showed that, for example, magnetic field. There's a lot of free energy machines that are magnetic motors. They're self-propelled. Mm-hmm. And the question is, where does the magnetic field come from? Uh, what is powering or uh, energizing the magnetic field of a magnet? And it, and it comes down to electron spin. And what is electron spin? Physics never tells you. So you, you're up at a, against a wall there. Uh, but in subquantum kinetics, it, it explains what it is. Is basically, and there are other ether theories too that talk about it. That it's an ether vortex, spin, and magnetic field is a vortex in the ether. And in subquantum kinetics, it explains how this vortex is generated and why. And it's generated inside the subatomic particle because there's fluxes going in and out from the center of the particle. it's sort of like uh, Reich's idea, to give you some analogy, you know, Wilhelm Reich. He was talking about etheric fluxes going into the earth, for example, and coming out. Um, and uh, these, the, these fluxes, the reason that they're occurring is because there's this subquantum flux driving these reactions. It's sort of difficult without showing you pictures okay, but of what's if, going on. So if we park zero-point energy and we talk about subquantum kinetics, then the subquantum, mm-hmm. the etheric field, is that where the potential is? That's to... where the source of energy is, and that's what Tesla was talking about when he was saying about connecting to the wheelwork of nature. Mm-hmm. Tesla's wheelwork, I believe he realized, he spoke about the ether, and he realized it was uh, a uh, an active ether. Um, he, he was into into the um, the views of uh, the Theosophist Society uh, at that time. Also, Mendeleev, the originator of the periodic table, chemist. Um, he had his own ether theory, which involved chemical-like transmutations, but going on at the etheric level. And that's essentially what subquantum kinetics is. Imagine chemical reactions going on, but they're not at the chemical level, at the etheric level. Okay, so forget zero-point energy. Move over zero-point energy. Let's talk about subquantum kinetics. What is the potential there, then? Yeah, well, this is just one example of the type of free energy. Now, uh, you could explain, for example... Uh, anti-gravity, like electrogravitics. Electrogravitics comes out of subquantum kinetics as a prediction. It just falls right out. Because uh, 
in standard physics, it teaches Einstein's theory that all matter is uh, positive mass, or in other words, gravity wells that would attract each other. In subquantum kinetics, it predicts that only positively charged particles, like protons, uh, are producing gravity wells. Negative particles, like electrons, negative charge, are producing gravity hills. They're anti-gravitic. And the only way you can see that, because you can't see it with uh, particle experiments, because the gravity field is so weak compared to the electric field. So what you have to do is put huge numbers of particles on a capacitor, like charge up a capacitor to uh, to, hundreds of thousands of volts, like Townsend Brown did, and he had the positive charge on one side of the capacitor and negative charge on the other, and he found that the the capacitor itself, if he suspended it like a pendulum, it would swing towards the positive pole, as if there was a gravitational force created between its plates pulling it. And this is just what uh, subquantum kinetics predicts. <clears throat> so subquantum physics predicts anti-gravitics. Mm. Uh, uh, so, in fact, uh, this is how I got into the field of anti-gravitics. I was working on subquantum kinetics, and I was worried about this fact that it was predicting that charge and gravity are correlated. <clears throat> and I thought, well, maybe my theory is wrong. And that, that's when I discovered Townsend Brown's work, which validated it. And I started getting into his work, and that's what got me into uh, anti-gravity and all the esoteric stuff. Well, <laughs> back in the 50s, um, I think it was Boeing, they were talking about, we're on, we're on the cusp, we're on the cusp with anti-gravitics. And then hmm. there was a certain, it was like an iron curtain came down, and you didn't hear anything more from Boeing about anti-gravitics, so, which leads to right. two possible conclusions. One, they ran into a dead end, they were embarrassed, they just didn't want to talk about it anymore. Or, they had a breakthrough, and they didn't want to talk about it anymore. Which do you think is correct? Well, actually, it wasn't just Boeing, it was all the major aerospace companies. So You could list maybe 20 aerospace companies that were studying electrogravitics in the 50s. And then the whole subject went dark around between 57 and 59, and you didn't see any more articles reporting on it. You know, you'd see articles in the Herald Tribune or a product engineering magazine. People in these aerospace companies would be talking about what they were doing, and then after that date, uh, nobody said anything, and uh, there was nothing published. And eventually everyone forgot about it. And it was due to a secrecy order. It was a clampdown. And, and um, <clears throat> my eyes were opened when I uh, came across, well, there was a, uh, I went to Library of Congress in, uh, when was it, 1985, to look up the topic of electrogravitics. I figured that's the biggest library in the U.S., and they should have something on this subject. And there was just one document in the whole library, <laughs> and it was called Electrogravitic Systems. By a, it was a study, think tank study put out by Aviation Studies. They're 
sort of uh, cater to the military industry. And I requested it, and it came back that it was missing from the stacks. And so I said, okay, can we do a, a search, uh, like interlibrary search? And the guy said, this is strange. I said, what? He says, well, there's only one copy in the whole interlibrary loan uh, uh, system, uh, right? Search, and, and it, it ended up being Wright Patterson Air Force Base. <laughs> well, big surprise there. So I uh, put in a request, crossed my fingers, and they actually sent it. And I uh, made many copies of it. And then uh, I was sharing it with friends for many for several years. And then uh, Tom Vallone said, "Well, we should get this out." And so I worked with Tom. We he published it in his book, Electrogravitic Systems, along with my paper, uh, Reverse Engineering the B two Bomber, which uses Townsend Brown's technology. In my opinion that, that originated as a paper. I presented at a conference, and uh, that was. Uh, the beginning of my uh, uh, research in anti-gravity, and it eventually developed into my book, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, and I added a lot of other technologies. And all of these uh, technologies can be understood in the framework of the ether concept, particularly subquantum kinetics. In, in, in your estimation, um, uh, how many other physicists of, of your stature, uh, this is a two-part question, uh, are, are sort of in line with you in terms of this uh, sub-quantum level of, of, of energy um, as opposed to what the zero-point vacuum describes? That's the first part. How many people are really kind of in line with that? And then, well, if Tesla was here, he would agree with me. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, that's um, good We're going to get to the second part of that question and the answer on the other side. Let's uh, do that. Just uh, hold tight, sit tight, and uh, we will come back with Dr. Paul LaViolette and Victor Vigiani as we continue to discuss a free energy, anti-gravitics, UFO propulsion. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back. And uh, Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Dr. Paula Violette uh, talking subquantum kinetics. So let's just forget about zero point. Uh, it's about subquantum kinetics, the etheric field. And this predicts anti-gravitics. And uh, Victor, before the break, you had asked Dr. Violette about how many other of physicists, aside from Nikola Tesla, um, are sort of on on side. And then you had a second question. Well, related to that, and if you have that constituency of of, uh, physicists that are sort of uh, advocating the the theory that you're talking about, and and then I guess the second part of my question is, are you aware of any practical, um, the existence of any practical applications of anti-gravitic technology that are in existence right now, either military or, or otherwise? Yeah, well, uh, as far as physicists, uh, I would say maybe uh, I, I haven't, it's difficult to say because maybe thousands. Uh, my books are fairly well read. It's gone through four editions. After all, the theory's been around for 40 years. Um, 
Space Command has taken an interest in it, uh, a way of, you know, uh, building uh, anti-gravitic uh, craft. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> it's cited in, uh, it's been cited in many journals. Uh, the, the theory was first published not in a physics journal, but in a systems journal. Because basically, you know, you know, general system theory, you're familiar with that? Not really. Hmm. <clears throat> Above my pay grade, I'm afraid. Hmm. It's um, viewing uh, nature in terms of systems, like your body is a system. Right, okay. Uh, it's made of cells, and cells are also a system. And uh, one common denominator that you're taught in this field is that uh, things are in life, li living systems are like open systems, and they're based on flux of their components. And uh, this has been applied, this model has been applied in the field of education, business administration. That fact, that's where I first learned about it was in uh, business school. Uh, and I had been developing my own system theory on my own when I discovered it. And I was quite relieved to see that other people had follow, followed the same path. I don't know if you're familiar with Irvin Laszlo. You heard of him, philosopher. Uh, he's uh, published a lot on system theory. Right. right. And, uh, in fact, he's a supporter of subquantum kinetics. Uh, lectured at his uh, symposia. And uh, uh, so basically, subquantum kinetics is an application of systems principles to physics, to microphysics. Nobody had done that before. You know, systems theory had been applied to all these other fields, so. My inspiration was, hey, you know, uh, some of these new things coming out, like chemical waves that were, were being discovered in the 70s, early 70s. Um, the Brusselator, Ilya Prigogine, was doing research with the Brussels School on the Brusselator, developed by a fellow named Lefebvre. Um, these were all, like, the these were... Re chemical reaction systems, they were open systems uh, that would produce patterns. And I thought, well, these patterns look like they, if I tweak them a little bit, if I tweak the equations, like the Brusselator reaction equations, which is a set of four equations, kinetic equations, uh, I could produce uh, what Einstein referred to as bunched fields, like uh, that particles are essentially bunched fields. They're, they're not solid in any way. They're, they're field concentrations. And in this case, it's fields, what are fields in this physics? They're etheron concentrations. Excuse me, Dr. Uh, LaViolette. I don't want to get uh, too deep into the, into the reads here. Okay, because, we don't have that deep. But I, you, you had, you know, it's in your biography that you, in 1993, you reversed engineered the, B5, the B2 bomber Right. Uh, classified propulsion technology. Were, were there aspects of anti-gravitics utilized on that B, B2 bomber? Now, that's more uh, what's called field propulsion. Um, <clears throat> what Townsend Brown referred to as electrokinetics as opposed to electrogravitics. And it, it, it's a case where if you have a capacitor uh, where it's uh, asymmetrical, Asymmetrical, meaning that one plate is larger than the other, you're going to get unbalanced forces 
on it, and that's going to move it. And Brown did experiments with these, and he showed he could lift a asymmetrical saucer off his workbench along with 10% weight in addition by putting 150,000 volts on it. So it's not technically anti-gravitic, but it has what, the same effect? Right, and I'm not saying the B-2 bomber doesn't also have anti-gravitic thrusters. Uh, It could have in its wing, Uh, but the propulsion system where it was disclosed by some... Uh, through leaks of some engineers, who were black ops engineers, uh, were saying that it charges the leading edge of its wing and it discharges the opposite ions in its exhaust. And it ends up creating this, this multi-million dollar, uh, excuse me, multi-million volt field across its wing. Uh, in fact, uh, so the wing itself becomes very negatively charged compared to the exhaust. So uh, what, is, what is the net effect of that? I'm, I'm guessing, what, huge fuel savings? Yeah, we see it creates a huge force moving the craft forward, this unbalanced force. And as a result, you could actually at one point shut off your jet engines, which are... Really, they're ion generators. Ah, so. now we're getting somewhere. All right, we're going to take a yet another time out. We will come back and pick up on that point precisely. Uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette stays with us. Likewise, Victor Vigiani, back with more. This is starting to heat up, folks. Be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. This is starting to heat up because uh, Dr. Leah Villette was discussing uh, how he reversed or reverse engineering the B-2 bomber and discussing this propulsion or classified propulsion technology. Um, And Victor had a... Well, I want you to pick up on what we were saying off air, what you were uh, saying off air, Victor. Go ahead. I I, I believe it's in a book by James McDonald, uh, Dr. Dr. Mm -hmm. Leviev, regarding this whole idea of um, the, 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 the wing edges of the B-2 bomber. And that they are that they become uh, electrified somehow or charged somehow with it with the, the wing the forward wing edges, and uh, as this charge uh, is is e- emitted, it's emitted forward to tell the mass of, of air in front of it to get out of the way. Right. So that it does do that. Right. Yeah. So that the, this the craft can move forward more quickly and not rely on. Uh, I guess the engines itself. So as a result of that, um, it, 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 it in fact does move more quickly. There's no it, resistance. There's, or it's lessened, or it's right. very little resistance. Right. Yeah. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Well, well that's uh, involved, but it's not the main force pushing it forward. Right, that's exactly. just reducing air friction. That's right. It's, and okay. you could use that on airplanes, too, right. and they don't do it. They exactly. Don't. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's what I was saying is this huge, uh, force. It's an unbalanced force that 
pushes the craft forward because you've got negative ions mm-hmm. in back that are putting a huge force on the tailpipe of the B2, uh, a repulsive force because the tailpipe is negative, the, mm-hmm. the exhaust. Uh, whereas the ions in back are also negative, and so you have this huge force pushing on it. On the other hand, the positive ions coming out the front <coughs> off the wing because the B2 is going forward, they angle back in the bow shock, so they also put a repulsive force on the front leading edge, which pushes in a forward direction. Uh, if you can picture that, you have to mm-hmm. see a diagram of this mm-hmm. whole thing. And so in that result is you get this forward propulsion, and like I was saying, at one point you can actually uh, cut off the fuel supply and B2 has got air scoops on its engines, and it, basically you're scooping in air, electrifying it, and that electrified exhaust goes out the back, and it acts like a Van de Graaff generator, because uh, they, even though they electrify it with only 50,000 volts, let's say, like your your room air ionizer, a little more than that, um, <clears throat> by the time it gets out the exhaust and travels down the length of the turbine, uh, it's gone up to millions of volts. And they pick up some of that with a plate, and they recycle it back. So um, they power the plane, actually, with the, this energy they're picking up from the forward motion of the plane. And, and what kind of speed are we, airspeed are we talking about? What's the potential there? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's classified, and I, I don't know. I haven't heard, you know, but... Uh, Could you speculate? Yeah, speculate. Uh, <laughs> Mach 10. Mach 10. My goodness. And, Victor, you pointed out because uh, there'd be no sonic boom, right? Well, that's the whole problem. Uh, we're, now we're getting into the whole idea of the UFO issue, okay, the or UAP, whatever you want to call them, that uh, in, in, in my... 40 years of interaction with this with this whole question is that we have these craft of unknown origin coming into our own airspace our dense airspace and they're moving at 10 15 20,000 miles an hour and uh, this is what we're told and they don't create a sonic boom and hmm. which is totally antithetical towards any kind of you know aerodynamics and flight dynamics that we're that we're accustomed to. So the question is, uh, if these B two machines that you that you're describing can utilize this kind of input of energy to uh, electrify their wing edges, uh, I guess the bottom line question in my mind is, do these so called craft of unknown origin or UFOs use a similar kind of propulsion system to move not only within our own airspace? But in the quantum vacuum of, you know, in the vacuum no, of space. No, use more sophisticated stuff. This yeah. is a relatively primitive. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's yeah. many ways to skin the cat. Yeah. Uh, and they, they've skinned the cat pretty well, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you could, uh, for example, charge uh, a saucer to very negative potential. And uh, like I said, subquantum kinetics, you're creating an anti-gravitic field by doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the higher you go in negative potential, the more 
lighter, basically, it would get. The craft would get, yeah. So it, in, in essence, the uh, I guess the, the bottom line question in my mind right now, and on a practical and, and I guess political level, is does the fossil fuel industry have anything to fear from this kind of uh, new technology or, or the, the design of the theory that you're talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it would cut down the need for fuel. I mean, the B-2 doesn't have to be fueled. They can go as long as they want, scooping air and uh, recycling the energy to keep going. Uh, so that's a real advantage, not having to fuel the B-2. They could make that available to the commercial airline industry. Right, and, and... I, I've argued for that. Uh, I, uh, I, I've tried to... Uh, to, to make those statements publicly, and uh, <clears throat> every, everything is sort of locked in place, of course, is this classification. Uh, <clears throat> so the government hasn't been willing to release yet the technology to industry. You the, know. Does the government have that uh, ability to decide to release or not Look, to release? Look, all the major aerospace companies that uh, make planes, at least like Boeing, you know, they're doing secret projects, too. They know all about this. And uh, they tried to declassify one aspect of uh, technology they had. It may have been field propulsion, I forget. <clears throat> and they were told no. Now, all this might change, because they say we're going through a pro- process of disclosure now. <clears throat> so these years, uh, just these few years, we're in a different era building a space force and supposedly make people more aware of what's going on in space, the secret space program. They're trying to find a way to inform people what we're doing out there. Probably they're running out of ways to capture money, you know, like <clears throat> siphon it off of Las Vegas probably isn't not working as well as it used to. <laughs> but they have probably set up an economy out there. It's been this has been stated, you know, the idea of the off-planet breakaway uh, civilization. civilization. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they can be, in fact, mining asteroids and whatever, you know, all sorts of raw materials out there, easily accessible: iron, uh, tritium from the moon, uh, gold, uh, platinum. You name it. You know. Meanwhile, we're still using, you know, solid rocket fuel and jeopardizing the lives of astronauts when it's all totally unnecessary, right? Now, I think the thing that is really going to make the move into the free energy is going to break everything open. Is uh, running cars on water? You've heard of this, right? Oh yes, hydrogen. Yeah, and Ken, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, anyway, uh, one inventor recently, he's got a company uh, uh, who's made a major breakthrough, and he can run a car on 99.9% uh, water and 0.1% gas. <laughs> he needs the gas to get it started, basically. And he... Uh, he extracts the water right out of the atmosphere with a condenser, so he doesn't even have to fill up. You know. And he's planning a uh, a coast-to-coast uh, caravan with uh, vans, and it'll be he'll be accompanied by a whole bunch of other vans for security purposes. 
to show everyone that this is possible to open people's eyes, you know, get news coverage and, uh, um, and there's, uh, various technologies for tapping, uh, energy of water. Also, Randall Mills has a technology where he claims to get a megawatt of power out of a little thing called a sun cell. You've heard of Randall Mills' uh, yes, device? Yes, I have, yes, yep. And, uh, <clears throat> now that's not understandable in current, uh, physics. Uh, Mills has a three-volume book he put out, reordering, reorganizing quantum theory. I've got to jump in here because we're going to take another uh, time out, top of the hour, and then uh, we'll carry through for the next hour with Dr. Paul LaViolette and uh, Victor Vigiani, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the water fuel cell. People might remember Stan Myers. Uh, Some say he died under very mysterious circumstances for uh, trying to break through with his technology. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this.